And a hearty welcome to one and all. This is episode 102 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for spending some of your early Tuesday evening here with me. If you're checking out episode 102 on the YouTube channel, haven't done so already, and are enjoying the content, click like, subscribe, comment, turn on those notifications. Or if you're catching up with this episode on the audio platforms such as Spotify or iTunes, and are enjoying the content, click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. So I began a new series last night called The Best Movie You've Never Seen. And we started with a movie which celebrates its 26th anniversary of being released here in the United States. Uh, Alex Proyas' visionary sci-fi masterpiece, still underseen, Dark City. Figured while the iron was hot that I would go right back to the well and talk about another movie probably never seen. And tonight's film that I'm going to discuss is a 1945 British horror anthology sort of a Twilight Zone before Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt before Tales from the Crypt. And the movie is called Dead of Night. Now, my first exposure to this film, in the days when the internet was in its infancy, and in order to do research on movies, it wasn't as easy to find obscure horror films in the mid-90s as it would be even a short time later. Despite already being a scholar, I was a film scholar before I went to film school. I was someone who did a shit ton of reading about movies, including within the horror genre. The old NYU professor, the late, great William K. Everson, film preservationist, curator, archivist, guy used to go on talk shows. Um, he was a horror film, not only expert, he was somebody who had written extensively on the horror movie genre. With that said, certain things slip through the cracks. There are plenty of old school, like universal horror films, which I had seen and studied and read about. And then there were other films like Val Luton, Cat People, um, Dead of Night got past me. It somehow was under the radar. And in my very first semester at New York University, fall of 1994, the same semester where early on, I iconically, legendarily, punted the opportunity to see the Shawshank Redemption a full month. A final print punted opportunity to see the Shawshank Redemption because of reasons, because I was a miserable POS, pain in the ass kind of a personality. But that same semester, I took a class called The Horrible with, if I may say this out loud, my favorite NYU professor of all time, the great David Legowski. And when he gave us the syllabus, the first the first class. The internet existed, as I say, but the syllabus was not printed online. We were still Stone Age professor handing us dittos. Dittos! Xeroxes, if you want to get, you know, want to get cute. Can you make me a Xerox? Yeah. Xerox. There you go. It's one of the great things that the word Xerox is used incorrectly because Xerox was the company that, it was the foremost copy company in the world. And instead of saying, can you get me a copy, people say, can you get me a Xerox? Talk about brand market penetration right there. That's it. But he handed out Xeroxes, copies of the syllabus. And I knew most of the movies on the syllabus. There were some obscure horror films which I kind of thought that I heard of. Terror at the Opera, and wait a minute, I'm not sure if I know that. 
Oh, that's Argento. Okay, I know that. And some of the other ones. Todd Browning's Dracula. Bride of Frankenstein. A lot of the kind of standards and the classics we watch in this class. Moni Baba? Don't think I know that one. Why Don? Don't think I know that one either. Horror of Dracula. There we go. Hammer Horror. I know this. So just a quick, you know, 20-year-old me, no patience for anything, but quick glance. There was one movie on that list that I knew that I had never heard of because I was familiar with horror from around the world. I had at least an idea that, okay, there's a series of uh, very intense Japanese horror films in the 60s, and I know who um, Dario Argento, I knew who he was, and um, obviously the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and Friday the 13th. John Carpenter's Halloween was on the syllabus, but Dead of Night, I remember saying, it sounds familiar, I, I don't know this. And I didn't do any more research because there wasn't any more research. I couldn't Google to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't know this. So I had, when I looked at it, I didn't immediately calculate as I would now, or any person interested in film who could have Googled said, oh, this is like Twilight Zone or Vault of Horror or Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the Crypt. But this is the first iteration of that style of movie. So it was early in the semester, and I was excited because I didn't know what it was. And also, the movie was, well, now it would be uh, 80 years old, but it was already almost 50 years old. I mean, October of 1994 is quite some time ago. Kind of painful to admit, but yes, this was already a very old movie. This is like a 1974 film now which, hell, I was born in 73. It's a long time ago, you know? In the immortal words of Robert Klein, a little older, more decrepit, yeah. But I was intrigued. I knew nothing of the film, and I noted that on the syllabus there were four different directors listed. Out of context, that's weird. That's suspicious, right, Cardi B? That's weird. What, I wonder what that means. Would they really make a movie, an hour and a half feature film? where four different people directed? Well, Professor Legowski introduced the film and said, first he asked how many people in the class had heard of it. I don't remember anybody raising their hand. Maybe one guy raised his hand. And I, given the attitude, I supported back. You know, that was always the attitude. Very cynical, dismissive. Basically, this is how Generation X was. We were very cynical and sarcastic before it was cool. We were trolling people, not online, but we were doing that kind of thing, having that kind of reaction. Um, who saw this movie? Oh, Jonas, you saw it. Bullshit. Mr. Cohen, anything to say? No. Bullshit. Yeah, that was me. That's me. So the, I asked, Professor, um, I've never seen a movie that's listed with four filmmakers. Are we missing something, or what's the, what's the context? You know, I, I had it in me to ask real questions, and I, I adored this professor. So I might try to drag someone else in the class, but I never was disrespectful to him. I asked what I thought was a really good question. And he smiled, because he was hoping that somebody was going to ask that question, because it would be easier for him to answer than to just jump into an explanation. So he says, ah, yes. And then a couple of other people in the class said, yeah, you know, I was thinking the same thing and, you know, kind of giving me a, one of these because 
You didn't always want to ask questions. When a professor launched into uh, like a monologue, almost like at the Oscars, an opening monologue, um, you didn't really want to interrupt him. But he paused and I asked a question. He says, yes, Jeremy. This movie is split into four segments. Huh. And then somebody else said, you mean like, like the Twilight Zone? Because many of us were familiar with the Twilight Zone movie, which had come out a little over a decade earlier. And that was a movie that had four filmmakers. Spielberg, Landis, Dante, and Miller. And the irony is, the greatest of the four, Spielberg, directed probably the weakest segment. And the second most talented of those filmmakers, arguably, John Landis, directed the next piece. The best segment was directed by Miller. And Joe Dante's segment was very interesting. The idea was that was a similar kind of story, although that was based on a TV series. The Twilight Zone, the movie, the way they assembled it was it's four kind of creepy stories, but there is a prologue and epilogue that kind of ties into the four creepy stories and really wallops. And this is the idea. So he said it's like that, and you remember how there were four different directors that each directed their own segment, even though technically it's one movie, Twilight Zone movie. But it's it's like four mini-movies in one movie. So as soon as he said that, I said, okay, I get it. And then somebody else said, that sounds like the HBO show Tales from the Crypt, and somebody else says, now, wait a minute, Tales from the Dark Side, and then there were all of this back and forth. And he said, okay, so I'm glad you guys know this. You know what to expect. It's an old movie. But don't sleep on it, because it's going to surprise you. And I will tease one thing. There is a sequence near the end of the movie you will not believe, where you will see so many different movies of later years being referenced, or that were, that they took inspiration from, or flat out copied from. I think you're all going to really enjoy this. So he starts the movie, and there is a segment which very clearly prefigures the Final Destination movies, where you have a character who gets stuck on a number and their fear of this number and of some kind of an eerie premonition ends up saving their life. It's plain as day. Twilight Zone later did an episode called 22, which took from that, and then the entire Final Destination series is premised upon premonition. And the idea of, if you're fucked, you're fucked. And so each of the short stories, short movies, they don't really seem to connect with the main thread of the plot, which is that a number of people gather at this sort of remote, and I know that's a cliche in a horror movie, a kind of dark and scary mansion. Although it begins in the daytime, and it's not really that dark and scary. There's one character, though. You have the character of a psychiatrist who is always explaining all of the bullshit away. You know, he's the guy in the horror movie that is not convinced that anything weird is happening. There's got to be somebody like that. And there is a psychiatrist in the movie whose purpose is to keep saying, there's a magical explanation for all of this. That guy. But one of the characters, the main character, in the sort of framing sequence, is convinced that... He's getting major deja vu in the setting with these people. And it's basically, it's a bunch of people telling, each are telling a scary story or a weird story of the occult or the supernatural. And this one character, it's a character, the actor's name is Mervyn Johns, if you want to Google him, he's technically the lead in this film. 
He's convinced that he's been here before and met all of you before and there is something fucking wrong because it feels like I'm living in a fucking circular loop. Now, he doesn't say circular loop, but this is what we get from this character. And it's all really intriguing. And the, the kind of short movies, the one with the, the premonition, it's very scary. And the final one, which deals with uh, the legendary, the late great Sir Michael Redgrave, is a ventriloquist who has a dummy that begins to take over his life and everything else. That story was literally turned into a feature-length film with Anthony Hopkins, who was very young at the time, late 1970s, called Magic. Not a coincidence. This movie, that's two separate films, in the case of Final Destination, a film series, and pieces of pop culture that were appropriated and reappropriated from this one obscure British horror film from 1945. As the story progresses and develops, and we see, and there's one segment, I remember when I was watching it, which is more comical than anything else. It's about a couple of guys, like, they're, they're on a golf course, and they're dead, and it's not scary at all. And there are certain prints of this film that do not include that particular segment and any reference to it because it, it almost throws everything out of whack. Nowadays, you might do that intentionally, as you've seen with horror films such as Scream, um, where you have graphic, brutal, and bloody violence, but then you have lighter moments. Often within the same scene, you have laughter, death, death, laughter. But in this movie, to me, it always stood out as a little bit wonky. And, um, but I remember when I saw the film, when it, we got to the end, I said, okay, it kind of, it's logical, it makes sense. At a certain point in the second segment, somebody said out loud, presumably for Professor Legowski's ears, this is really good. This is really creepy. And Legowski stopped the movie. And you could see, even in the dark, he was smiling. He was happy, because he wasn't sure. He was a very young man. I believe he was still in his 20s at the time. He wasn't sure if this movie, which was, as I say, already almost five decades old, was going to play. But we were all on the edge of our seats, because it leaves this weird setup where a guy's talking about what amounts to deja vu. And you have a fucking pain-in-the-ass psychiatrist who is shooting down every theory that everyone is, you know, that kind of guy. He was thrilled that we were into the film. And he, he said a few more words. He said, I'm really glad you're enjoying it. Oh, yeah, yeah, can we get back to the movie? And um, turns the movie back on. And sure enough, then there's another story about like a magic mirror. And we've seen horror films in the last 10 years where there's a mirror that almost takes on a life of its own and starts fucking with the inhabitants of the house. I don't remember the name, but I know there's a movie in like the 2014 range. It was a Hollywood, big Hollywood film. Not Insidious, but a movie like that. Uh, there's a, a, like a creepy mirror where a guy keeps looking into the mirror and imagining all kinds of crazy shit happening. So we reach the end of the four short stories. And then all of a sudden, a crazy mashup of all of the stories collide. And it is absolutely 
bonkers, batshit crazy five minutes where we just can't believe what we're looking at. It doesn't feel like something from 1945. It is scary for any time. And contemporary audiences, anybody stumbling onto this film for the first time is going to be freaked the fuck out by the way the story comes to its conclusion. No spoilers, not going to tell you how it turns up, but the people in the house telling the scary stories, they're not just there for shits and giggles, and they're not just there to tell a scary story. Everything ends up being inextricably linked. And at the end of the film, this is the only time I saw it in what could be considered a movie theater type setting, uh, the sixth floor Tisch School of the Arts Cinema Studies wing had this really nice, whether 1994 or 2024, it probably doesn't look that much different, a beautiful high-end screening where you had a projector sitting up, you know, and, and they would actually be switching to film cans. We only watched movies that had actual film cans. DVD was still years away. And they certainly weren't going to use VHS tapes. Oh, God, a, a professor, they would have had a heart attack. The idea of watching a movie on a VHS tape. They had enough trouble when they, if they couldn't get a print. You had to pretty much bully them into getting the laser discs because they thought even that was a disgrace. Nowadays, with nothing but streaming services and very few film cans to be found, maybe on uni in universities, but physical media includes DVD and Blu-ray. And as Christopher Nolan has pointed out, we need to continue to produce physical media even if the purists object to the idea of watching a movie on anything other than its purest format, which would be film cans. We don't want the evil streaming services to control what we watch. And a movie which I love from 2023, Leave the World Behind, the entire film could be boiled down to its barest essence, the need for physical media so the evil streaming services don't tell you what you can or cannot watch. We don't like Chris Nolan. Fuck him. We're not going to show any more Chris Nolan. But we're not going to show any more Hitchcock films. Or, in the case of Leave the World Behind, it's not that. It's more the idea of if you have unlimited generator power, let's say that there is a major power outage. And in a world of this movie, Dead of Night, there is scenes of a power outage. But let's just spitball, okay? We have rolling blackouts, a massive power outage. There's no power anywhere in New York State. And we learn there's not going to be any power in New York State for the next month. Let's go that crazy. An event like a terrible hurricane. We're not going to have any power for at least a month. There's probably not going to be any streaming services up and running because there's no, satellites are knocked out. There's nothing. But if you have gas, if you have, let's just say, Will Smith in I Am Legend, you have unlimited fuel and unlimited generator power. And you have a vast, vast library of Blu-rays dozens and dozens of TV series, thousands of movies in your basement. Well, you're good to go. In the immortal words of Jack Nicholson, in as good as it gets, sell crazy something sense. You're all stocked up here. You're all stocked up here. Physical media. You have the means to have power on and turn a TV on through generator power. You can't get any fucking streaming service because the satellites are knocked out and nothing is working but Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS, 
film cans will still function. Right? So, the craziness of the end of this movie, the lights come up, and we're all sitting there in shock as the projectionist behind us, the professor rarely acted as projectionist. Sometimes they would help the projectionist to keep things together. Because if you have a lot of different reels and it's dark, you might get mixed up and put the wrong reel on. That happened plenty of times. They're supposed to switch from reel two to reel three and suddenly we have reel six on. Hey, how did we go from two people in a library and now they're having sex? And it's a different woman we haven't met yet? You know, that, literally that happened. It's kind of fun. You're not going to get that in a Blu-ray. When the movie was over and we talked about it, we went over some of the things that I mentioned to you that, wow, this movie really, and Final Destination had not come out yet. Um, but we talked about how, how good this movie was, how intense it was for a sort of stately British period horror. It was fantastic. And even with the fact that there were different filmmakers involved, it felt as if they were working towards, not a common good, but they were working to coalesce into a whole which was a phenomenal horror Better than Twilight Zone movie, which I have a soft spot for. I really like it, even the weaker segments. The Spielberg segment, which generally speaking, if somebody says, what is the worst thing that Steven Spielberg ever did as far as a movie? Some people will immediately say 1941. Other people might say, you know, the sequel to Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, which was not great. But many will say, the segment that he directed for Twilight Zone, it's really shit. He's got to be able to do better. Well, he did do a lot better. Shut up. I like it. I like all four segments. The first segment, directed by John Landis, is notorious because the actor Vic Morrow and two kids he was working with perished because Landis did not really pay attention to the safety protocols which had been put in place. That's a whole other issue. As far as anthology movies go, Dead of Night is the best one. And for people who are horror movie fans, unfamiliar, because I would say, unlike Dark City, which enough, it made enough money, and yes, it's 26 years old, so it's less likely people under 35 have seen it, I'm more confident that you've never seen Dead of Night. Most people tuning in to this episode, some may have heard of it, but like, for example, Alfred Hitchcock, some of his more famous movies like Psycho and The Birds, within the last couple of years, were on Netflix for a few months. So there were presumably people who may have been familiar with Bates Motel, you know, the TV series, terrific, uh, and may have been familiar with Psycho, may have been familiar with Bird, The Birds, but never actually watched it, and they had the opportunity to see it when it was on Netflix, because when Psycho landed, it ju jumped into the top 10, and people were shocked, because they said, God, this is a movie that's more than 60 years old. Alfred Hitchcock has been dead for 43, 44 years, and people are still watching. So there is that idea that people who love horror, specifically horror, will watch an older movie if they think it's good. If it is teased to them as being something different. And there are many, of young, many young people who were stunned by how well Psycho played, even in 2023, when they sat down to watch it on Netflix, whether or not they were familiar with Bates Motel. Now, a little bit of trivia before I, I close this segment. Um, one of the uh, one of the four stories in Dead of Night is directed by someone whose name will be familiar, but maybe not for the reason you think, uh, a British filmmaker named Charles Crichton. 
And it's not Michael Crichton's dad, at least I don't think. Let me double check, but I'm pretty sure that it's not Michael Crichton's dad. Well, I'll have that on my face. If it is, because it's spelled the same way. Um, Charles Crichton was a British filmmaker. And, man, he was 89 when he passed. He was born in 1910. So he was in his his early to mid-30s when he made this movie. Man, that's that's pretty significant. No, it's not. It's not Michael Michael Crichton's dad. But the reason why I brought it up is that he made another movie in the 50s, which is a kind of legendary film with a young Sir Alec Guinness, years before Bridge on the River Kwai, 25 plus years before Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, called The Lavender Hill Mob. And Alec Guinness, if you only know him as Obi-Wan, what an amazing actor he was, an incredible screen performer. So he did The Lavender Hill Mob, Charles Crichton. It's one of the best films, certainly, of uh, you know, British films in the early 50s, for 100% certain. And an amazing performance from Sir Alec Guinness. But most important, a movie that actually I mentioned on the channel when discussing Kevin Klein's extraordinary dual performance in the movie Dave and the other series that I've started, most underrated film performances. I mentioned the movie A Fish Called Wanda because that's where Kevin Klein won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And this was my way of pointing out that Kevin Klein may not be a name that's that well known for movie fans under the age of 40 in particular. But he was someone who was very highly respected within the industry and somebody who was always thought of as a a massive talent. And he had the hardware, the Oscar hardware to show. A Fish Called Wanda, the movie for which Kevin Klein won Best Supporting Actor in a film which is technically John Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. We remember Kevin Klein's performance more. The director of that film was Charles Crichton more than four decades after taking part in Dead of Night, the horror anthology movie I just talked about, he made a crazy screwball comedy, and one of the best really ever made. When people talk about classic screwball comedies, A Fish Called Wanda invariably gets mentioned. It's absolutely in the top ten. You want to throw um, The Awful Truth and Bringing Up Baby and The Philadelphia Story and the great movies that happened one night, those kinds of films, A Fish Called Wanda slots right in there. That's a guy with staying power, with lasting power and ability to continue to produce quality work. So he would have been, man, he was in his, he was in his late 70s. That's really impressive. You know, there was a time where there was ageism in Hollywood, and uh, George Cukor, the famous filmmaker from the early sound era, uh, he directed a film called Rich and Famous with, I think, Candace Bergen? And he was in his early 80s, and it was like, oh my God, we can't insure him. It's impossible. But here we have Francis Coppola literally completing the film Megalopolis. And he's older than that. Francis is 82, 83. Might even be 84 when the film finally comes out. Something that I really love to see. That they're not just phasing out the iconic, legendary filmmakers because they're over 70, or heaven forbid, over 75. But yes, Charles Crichton directed A Fish Called Wanda 43 years after co-directing Dead of Night, an extraordinary, scary, creepy-as-fuck horror movie, second in the series, the best movie you've never seen. And before I really finish, the film is streaming free on, um, like, Brightbox, like one of, one of the Amazon, you can rent it on Amazon, but it is free on the app called Canopy, which I've mentioned, 
which all you need to do is lo to log into Canopy and check out their entire library. And Dark City is on Canopy as well, uh, yesterday's movie. Uh, you just need a library card. You don't even need your library card. You need a library card. If you have a friend who is willing to literally give you his digits, you're into Canopy for free, and you can watch Dead of Night anytime you want to be scared. And I guarantee you, despite the fact that the movie is so very old now, it will get under your skin and it will rattle like you won't believe. And with that, we've reached the end of episode 102 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast and the second part in our continuing series of the best movie you've never seen. If you checked out this particular episode on the YouTube channel, enjoy the content, haven't done so already, click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, and also comment, please. Or if you've caught episode 102 on the audio platforms such as Spotify or iTunes, same rule applies, click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 103 real, real soon. Until then, in the immortal words of the creep in Creep Show 2, Try to stay scared.